good morning. Uh, if you have a copy of God's Word, you can turn to Acts chapter 8. As uh, we've seen over the last uh, couple weeks, as the early church uh, was growing, uh, once the gospel began you know, spreading all throughout Jerusalem in 33 AD, the religious establishment employed increasingly drastic measures to slow down their momentum. In chapter 4, they arrested Peter and John before releasing them. They, they threatened them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. Uh, but Peter and John fired back, saying we can't help but speak of what we have seen and heard. And then in chapter 5, they arrested all 12 apostles, but Peter continued speaking defiantly to the council. And uh, scripture says the council was enraged and wanted to kill them, but cooler heads prevailed. A Pharisee named Gamaliel uh, basically told the whole council, hey, if this movement is a man-made movement, then it'll, it, it'll, it'll sort of crumble. It's not going to go very far. But if this is a movement that is of God, you may be standing against God. So let's just kind of let these guys do their thing and, and see what happens. And so they, they settled with, with flogging them instead of, of killing them. And then last week we looked at chapter 6 and 7 where their frustration reached a bowling point. After a young man, a young leader in the church named Stephen was charged with speaking blasphemy against God, Moses, the law, and the temple, uh, he was brought before the council and the high priest asked him, are these things so? And Stephen goes on to preach the longest sermon recorded in Acts where he uses a survey of Old Testament history to turn the tables on the council. He essentially says to them, you say that I'm a blasphemer, but the truth is you have turned your backs on God. You have rejected Moses and the other prophets. You have disobeyed the law. You have worshipped foreign idols. You have rejoiced in the work of your hands. And a few months ago, you killed the Son of God. And so all that, that tension reaches a fever pitch in this moment, and their response was swift and brutal. The religious leaders surrounded Stephen, they drug him out of town, and they crushed his body with stones. So this is what we've seen over the last few chapters. To recap, they arrested preachers, but they kept preaching. They threatened preachers, but they kept preaching. They whipped preachers, but they kept preaching, and then they murdered a preacher, hoping that the death sentence of Stephen would bring a death sentence to the Jesus movement too, but it didn't. The gospel kept moving forward. And so at the start of, of chapter 8, Luke briefly mentions a few details about the aftermath of Stephen's execution. So let's read them, starting in verse 1. It says, And Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravishing the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. 
after the death of, of Stephen, a great persecution begins against the church in Jerusalem. But this persecution was all part of God's plan. In verse 1, we see the church was scattered through the regions of Judea and Samaria, and that's important, and that should sound familiar to you. Because back in Acts 1.8, Christ called his followers to start in Jerusalem before moving where? To Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So, so that's the charge. That's the commission from Christ. But then for the first seven chapters of Acts, the church doesn't expand outside the walls of the holy city. And so God uses this wave of persecution to jumpstart the spread of the gospel. As Charles Spurgeon explains it, the scattering of the church was also the scattering of good seeds in broader fields. The malice of Satan was made the instrument of the mercy of God. In other words, the, the, the purpose of the great persecution was silencing their message, but in reality only emboldened and extended their message as a direct result of the suffering happening in Jerusalem, the first missionaries in church history were sent out. And one of them is the subject of chapter 8. One of them was a, another young leader in the church named Philip. Now before we get to his story, I want to I highlight how Luke describes Stephen and Saul in verses 1 through 4. When we watch a, a movie or, or read a story in our house, our three-year-old trip always wants to know from the very beginning who are the good guys and who are the bad guys. He doesn't care about spoilers. He isn't worried about twists. He just wants to know right away, is he good? Is he bad? Should I be pulling for him? Should I be rooting against her? He, he wants to know up front who is good and who is bad. And, and in these verses, Luke clearly answers this question. He frames Stephen as the hero and Saul as the villain. Here's what he writes about Stephen in verse 2. He says, Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. This small footnote tells us that Stephen was honored for his faithful service and not blamed for the resulting persecution. Now, of course, we can assume in a church that at this point had thousands and thousands of members, all of them weren't pleased with Stephen. All of them weren't shouting, way to go, Stephen. Some of them were certainly blaming Stephen for the uptick in persecution. You know, some were complaining about his tactics. Can't you just imagine some of those conversations? Listen, Stephen's speech was totally uncalled for. It brought all this unnecessary strife and, and, and conflict. I mean, it's one thing to defend gospel truth, but it's another thing to call the Sanhedrin stiff-necked men who have resisted the Holy Spirit. Honestly, why did he use the harshest terms? And what did he accomplish? He's dead and now we are scattered. And so surely some in the church would have had that perspective. But under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Luke shares God's version of the story in these chapters. 
Luke writes that when Stephen served the church, he was he led with faith, grace, and power. That when he was accused of blasphemy, he spoke with clear gospel conviction. When he was surrounded by an angry mob, he was filled with the Holy Spirit. And when he died, he was celebrated by devout men who recognized his faithfulness. And then, on the other end of the spectrum, we have Saul. At the end of chapter 7, he was mentioned for the first time in the New Testament. Verse 58 says that the angry mob laid their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. He didn't throw a stone, but he was close enough to the action, involved enough with the action, that he was able to serve as a human coat rack for the ones who did throw the stones. And notice that in verse 1, Luke adds another note about Saul. He says that he approved of Stephen's execution. So Saul was not an innocent bystander. As a staunch defender of Judaism, he believed the apostles were leading a dangerous, heretical movement which was a direct threat to his way of life. So he supported the murder of Stephen. And he felt completely justified in his quest to silence others who were preaching the same message. As he was ravaging the church, as he was entering house after house and dragging off men and women and committing them to prison, he was certain that he was living on the right side of history. And these plot details are important because Saul would eventually become Paul. And so we must remember that before he preached the gospel, planted churches, trained leaders, authored two-thirds of the New Testament, and became the apostle to the Gentiles for the early church, he was one of the fiercest enemies of the early church. Which reminds us, the gospel should be extended to everyone because Christ can save anyone, including someone who is actively working to destroy his church. Now one interesting note here, John MacArthur points out that one of the great ironies between Stephen and Saul in Acts chapter 8 is that after his conversion, Paul would experience a whole lifetime of suffering which mirrored Stephen's brief suffering. MacArthur writes that Stephen was disputed and resisted in the synagogue, so was Paul. Stephen was accused of speaking against Moses, the temple, the law, so was Paul. Stephen was seized and drugged out of the city, so was Paul. Stephen was brought before the Sanhedrin, so was Paul. Stephen was stoned, so was Paul. Stephen was martyred, so was Paul. In verses 1 through 4, Stephen is the clear hero and Saul is the clear villain, but by God's grace, they would both become heroes in church history who suffered for the sake of Christ and labored for the spread of the gospel. All right, let's pick back up in verse 5. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what he was being said by Philip. When they heard him and saw the signs they did, 
For unclean spirits were crying out with a loud voice, came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. So when the church was scattered, Philip made his way to Samaria, where he quickly gained an audience because he was performing these incredible miracles. They were listening to Philip because the miracles authenticated the message. You know, in our time, you, you can tell if someone is a false teacher or not by, by looking to see if their teaching aligns with Scripture. We, we have God's Word, and so we can look at God's Word and say either what he's saying lines up with this or what he's saying does not line up with this. They didn't have that luxury in the first century. So many times when the early church is expanding, the miracles authenticated the message. And in the crowd, there was a man named Simon who became infatuated with Philip's power through the Holy Spirit. And as a result, in the following verses, he, he would go through the motions of the faith. He would claim belief in Christ. He would go through baptism. And he would enter into a discipleship relationship with Philip, but ultimately his commitments would prove insincere. To use sports terminology, Simon was a bandwagon band wagon fan of Christ. If you aren't familiar with that term, a bandwagon fan is someone who jumps on the bandwagon when a team is experiencing a great deal of success. For example, if you said, I'm a diehard Yankees fan, and you've never traveled north of Kentucky, then I'll assume you probably jumped on the bandwagon somewhere in the 90s or early 2000s when they were collecting World Series trophies on an almost yearly basis. Or, if you say, I've been an Alabama football fan since 2009, then I'll know you jumped on the bandwagon when Nick Saban won his first national title with the Crimson Tide, and you've only been a fan of the team during the greatest run in college football history. And so in a similar way, Simon was swept up in this exciting movement of God. When Philip came into town, casting out demons, healing the sick and lame, and preaching the good news, Simon jumped on the bandwagon, but ultimately, as we'll see, he was never interested in following Christ. He was only interested in acquiring some of his power. He was a fan of and not a follower, and his example serves as a warning for all of us. And so as we continue, we'll highlight four red flags with Simon's character, which point to a false faith in Christ, a false sense of security in his salvation. So verse 9 says, But there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him, from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he amazed them with his magic. So first red flag, Simon was filled with pride. A few of the early church fathers believe Simon was one of the founders of Gnosticism which was a prominent heretical movement in the 1st and 2nd century. In the simplest terms, Gnostics claimed they had some secret elevated knowledge about the spiritual realm. 
And as we see there in verse 9, Simon certainly had an elevated view of himself. He was basically telling everyone in town who would listen, hey, I'm great. And they believed him because they were amazed by his magic tricks. Which brings the question, did Simon have any actual power? Now we don't know for sure, but more than likely his, his magic was some sort of combination of scientific knowledge, superstition, and, and sleight of hand. But we should also mention that in Acts 13, Paul and Barnabas encounter another magician who Paul calls a son of the devil. So it's possible in Simon's case, that demonic forces could have been the reason for his power. But either way, Simon had bewitched the Samaritans with his magic. They were impressed with him, so they paid attention to him. They, they determined that his power was coming from a divine source. According to verse 10, they said, This man is the power of God that is called great. So Simon said, I'm great. And they agreed, Yeah, you're great. Go, Simon. And all of this fostered pride in Simon's heart. The scripture often warns about the danger of becoming puffed up with pride. Proverbs 16 says, The Lord detests all the proud of heart. Pride goes before destruction. Obviously, Simon is a, an extreme example of this. None of you are going around Lowndes County claiming to be deities or using magic tricks to try to gain a following, but all of us are vulnerable to pride. C.S. Lewis once wrote, A proud man is always looking down on things and people, and of course, as long as he is looking down, he can't see what is above him. In other words, when you imitate Simon and you make a habit of calling yourself great, your pride starts clouding your vision of God and eventually your pride creates a barrier between you and God. And that pattern goes all the way back to Genesis 3. Why did Adam and Eve eat from the tree of knowledge and good and evil? Because they wanted to be like God. The proud refuse God's help, saying, Thanks, God, but I'm good. I can handle it. And the humble repeat the old hymn, Lord, I need you every hour. I need you. James 4, 6 says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And so Simon was filled with pride. Let's move to verses 12 and 13. But when they believed Philip, as he preached the good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued with Philip. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. So second red flag, Simon was, was motivated by selfish gain. Luke uses the word amazed three different times in our passage. And in verse 9, he says, Simon amazed the people of Samaria. Verse 11 says again that he amazed them with his magic. But then in verse 13, Simon's the one who's amazed. After seeing signs and miracles performed, after seeing the power of God on full display, he himself was amazed. 
Simon recognized the fundamental difference between his tricks and Philip's miracles. And as a result of that, on some level, he bought in. Luke records that Simon believed. Simon was baptized, and Simon continued with Philip. And so this is where things get a little bit tricky. Simon claims faith in Christ. Simon is baptized in the name of Christ. And then Simon starts a discipleship relationship with Philip. But as we'll see in a few verses, it was all for show. Because when Simon came into the fold... He, he was asking how can God serve me not how can I serve God? As I heard another pastor put it, Simon was interested in a Jesus and gospel. He wanted Jesus and his magic. Jesus and his agenda. Jesus and his priorities, Jesus and his personal platform. In the Bible Belt, there are many cultural Christians who are working with a similar arrangement where they determine, I'll follow Christ. I'll give him a portion of my time and my resources. I'll even make him the primary influence in my life, but I will maintain the right to refuse a few things along the way. J.D. Greer uses an illustration where he asks, how would you feel if you ask your spouse, are you faithful? And your spouse answered, yes, 99% of the time. I'm faithful. Now, I'm assuming your response would not be, well, you know, honey, obviously, I would prefer for you to be at 100%, but I got to admit, 99% is a strong number. If you think about it, if you do the math over the whole year, you're saying that you're faithful to our marriage covenant 361 out of 365 days. I am truly blessed. Here's the point. Even if you are 99% committed to Christ, you are still 100% in control. But the truth is, if you follow Christ, you don't hold the veto power. You don't add stipulations to the relationship. You don't settle on the terms and conditions. When you go too far down this road of adjusting God's requirements of you, you totally change your relationship with Him. And if you are constantly moving the goalposts to the point where it's better and more comfortable for you, then you are probably worshiping a God created in your own image, not the God of Scripture. This is what happened with Simon. His salvation was not rooted in the finished work of Christ. It was centered on his own selfish gain. 
Let's keep moving. Verse 14. Now when the apostles of Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit, for he had not fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. So they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Verses 14 through 17 are our quick sidebar from the story of Simon the Magician. Once the apostles in Jerusalem heard of revival breaking out in Samaria, they sent Peter and John to visit with them. Typically, when a person places their trust in Christ for the first time, their decision is always sealed by the Spirit in that moment. This is what happened in Pentecost. This is what continued to happen uh, throughout church history. But verse 15 says, The Samaritans had not yet received the Holy Spirit. And so you may be wondering, why don't they receive the Holy Spirit immediately like everyone else? And honestly, we don't have time to properly wrestle with that question because we don't have time to fully recount the complicated and messy history between the Jews and Samaritans, but just know they hated each other. And so most commentators, theologians, believe that God withheld the Holy Spirit until Peter and John could come give their blessing, because they were the two most influential leaders in the early church. And if they believed that Samaritans were genuine believers who followed the same Christ and received the same Spirit, then they would be able to go back and convince the others. You know, without Peter and John, there would have been a threat of another church launching in Samaria, but their endorsement of the Samaritans brought a measure of unity among the two groups with a history of disdain for one another. Verse 18. Now when Simon saw the Spirit was given by the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven. For I see that you are in, a gall, in the gall of bitterness and the bond of iniquity. Third red flag. Simon was desperate for power. When Peter and John arrived, Simon's true colors were revealed. His, his pride and, and selfishness had been bubbling under the surface, but in verse 19, his true nature was exposed. When he saw the Holy Spirit was given through the hands of the apostles, he offered them money. He said, give me this power also. Let me have this power also so that everyone I touch may receive the Holy Spirit. The basis of Simon's faith was not Christ. It was supernatural signs and wonders. The sad thing is, when Philip stretched out his hand to perform miracles for the purpose of showcasing the glory of Christ, remember the miracles authenticated the message, Simon fixed his gaze on the miracles and missed the Messiah. Philip didn't see those blind spots, but Peter did. He said, may your silver perish with you. You have no 
part or lot in this matter. Your heart is not right with God. Repent. Pray that if possible, the attention of your heart may be forgiven you. Peter recognized that Simon was missing a, a heartfelt recognition of his sinfulness. He was missing a humble trust in Christ for forgiveness. And so Peter essentially told him, your heart was not right with God. You must repent. You must turn from your wickedness and trust in God. And then in verse 24, Simon responds. And Simon answered, pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you said may come upon me. So fourth and final red flag, Simon was unrepentant. He asked for prayer, but he didn't repent. For the first time, he understood his place before a holy God. He knew he was guilty. He knew he was prideful, selfish, desperate for power, but he didn't ask for mercy. He didn't seek grace. He didn't request forgiveness. Instead, he made this feeble attempt to escape the consequences. He could have asked Peter, John, or Philip, how do I make things right with God? Remember, that's what they, they yelled out at Pentecost. Brothers, what should we do? And they could have walked him through it. But he didn't. Instead, he just said, please pray that nothing of what you said may come upon me. In Matthew 13, Jesus tells the parable of the sower. He says, a, a man went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seeds fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured them. Other seeds fell on the rocky ground where they didn't have much soil, and immediately they sprang up, but since they had no depth of soil, the sun rose and they were scorched. Since they had no root, they withered away. Other seeds fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them out. Other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear. And so Christ describes four possible reactions to the gospel. First, there were seeds which were immediately devoured by birds. Some will never accept the gospel. Second, there were seeds which fell on rocky ground and, and sprang up until the sun scorched them. Some will receive the gospel with joy, but then turn from it with, when trials and, and tribulations come upon them. Third, there are seeds which fall among the thorns and are destroyed. Some, like Philip, will, will hear the gospel, but they'll refuse to give up the things of the world and they will be choked out by their own selfish desires. And then finally, there are seeds which fall on good soil and produce grain. Some will hear the gospel, understand it, rejoice in it, and they'll turn around and use their gifts to produce fruit for God's kingdom. When Philip preached the gospel in Samaria, the overwhelming majority were part of that final category. They were good seeds planted on good soil who would eventually produce good fruit, but one seed fell among the thorns. In the end, Simon 
prove to be a fan of Christ and not a true follower of Christ. Several years ago, Kyle Eidelman, who's a pastor in Louisville, Kentucky, wrote a popular book called Not a Fan, where he urges the reader to define his or her relationship with Christ. He asks, among other things, did you settle on a conclusion about Christ in the past, or are you committed to him in the present? Do you have knowledge about him, or do you have intimacy with him? Is he one of many, or is he your one and only? Are you following him, or are you following rules? Are you self-empowered, or are you spirit-filled? And with these pressing questions, Eidelman forces readers to reflect on their standing before God, which is not a bad thing. It's not a bad thing to reflect on your standing before God now because you will be standing before Him later. Matthew 7, Jesus says, On that final day, many will say, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in Your name? Did we not drive out demons in Your name? Did we not perform miracles in Your name? And I will tell them plainly, I never knew You away from Me, you evildoers. Donald Whitney says, if a person is wrong about being right with God, then it doesn't matter what he or she is right about. And so before we close out this morning, I want to leave you with two questions for your self-evaluation, which will help you determine if you're right with God. First question is this. Do you have a present trust in Christ for your salvation? Not a past decision, a present trust. And number two, can you see a pattern of spiritual growth in your life? See, question one deals with your justification. Is Christ your Savior? Would you agree with Paul's statement in Galatians 6.14? Would you say your only boast is in the cross of Jesus Christ? And then question two addresses your sanctification. Is Christ your Lord? When you consider your time following Him, do you see a pattern of spiritual growth where you trust Him more? where you value Him more, where you seek Him more, where you, you pray to Him more, where you serve Him more, where you talk about Him more, where you love Him more. Justification it is positional or, or vertical righteousness before God through Christ's death and resurrection for us, sanctification is practical or horizontal righteousness that develops and grows through the Spirit's work in us. True followers of Christ were justified in Him, are being sanctified through the Spirit, and one day will be glorified by the Father. So with those things in mind, I leave you with the question at hand. Are you a fan or follower of Christ? Let's pray.
Father, we we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you for the example that we, we see of, of, of the apostles and the leaders in the early church and their and their boldness to, to go with the gospel all over the ancient Roman Empire. And Father, I, I pray that, that we would be a church that would grow in that type of boldness. That we would be bold in our homes, we would be bold in our offices, we would be bold at, at the ball field. Be ready and prepared to speak gospel truth when the opportunity arises. And Lord, in this passage, as we as we consider Simon the magician, we, we see the story of a man who, who should serve as a warning to us. And so, Father, I pray that in these final moments of this service, that we would we would wrestle a little bit with self-evaluation. That we would answer these questions individually. That we would determine if we have a present trust in Christ, that we can see a pattern of spiritual growth. And then, Father, if the answer to both those questions is yes, I pray that it would give a measure of comfort to all those who answer in the affirmative. But if there are some who are unsure, there are some who can flatly say no. Father, I pray that they would have the boldness to come forward and make a decision for Christ. To stop being a fan and start being a follower. Lord, we love you. We thank you for your son. We pray all these things in his name. Amen.